Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. It says in the 19th verse, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. Now, whether you're a skilled pulpiteer or not, that verse just outlines itself, doesn't it? Any of you could take that and work with it a little bit and find that there's uh, some points there that you could go from point to point and just have a Bible study and say, let's talk about that for a while. What do you think about that? So it, it really lends itself very well to discussion and to application to our life. Let me start off with the first one. Don't quench the spirit. The language very obviously reminds us of tending to a fire. And even there's one translation that uses that metaphor, and it puts it this way, don't put out the spirit's fire. Don't despise what God has revealed. That's a little bit different from uh, do not treat prophecies with contempt. Trying to get at the same essential message. And instead, test everything. And then number three, hold on to what is good. And number four, keep away from every kind of evil. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. How many of you reading through the entire Bible this year, starting in the Old Testament? Are many of you here? Okay, we've got some of you. You've already made it through the hard parts by now. Genesis is pretty good. Some great stories there. Uh, Exodus is, is fairly interesting, but it starts to bog down a little bit. Leviticus. That's tough, isn't it? Numbers and Deuteronomy. Pretty soon you feel like you're just swimming in jello trying to get through that part of the Bible. But if you got anything out of your reading through Leviticus, any time that you've read it, or if it's free, fresh on your mind from having gone on your program through the Bible in a year, then you remember that there's some very detailed descriptions in the book of Leviticus about the sacrificial system that God set up for his people. Different kinds of, of sacrifices that were instituted. There's the bird offering sacrifice, grain sacrifice, the fellowship offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. And as you're reading through those first few chapters of Leviticus, Aaron and his sons are ordained, you will be the priests. And in the fifth chapter of Leviticus, the Lord makes a command concerning this sacrificial system, and he says, and the fire will ever be burning upon the altar. It's declared at that point, it's going to be a perpetual fire. We don't have a perpetual fire in our worship system, not a literal perpetual fire. I'm reminded one year of watching the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. And you know how they choose a runner, an Olympic runner, to carry that torch, and this is supposed to be a torch that does not go out. So they, the runner carries it. Uh, it comes from quite a distance away, but, of course, the final leg of this journey is to come up and light the big torch. Starts the games. And this one year... There were some ornery people that decided on this last leg of this journey they were going to tackle the runner and put his light out. Now, how mean can you get? You run that far with a light, a lamp, a fire, and just before you reach the end, somebody wants to snuff it out for you. 
This concept of this perpetual fire is not just in Judaism, but the fact of the matter is, it was a concept that many heathen religions borrowed. And we read of this, how the heathens imitated this ritual of a perpetual fire. The Brahmins of India had their perpetual fire upon the altar. The Persians, history, history shows that they had theirs. The Grecians. The Romans had their goddess Vesta, who was believed to be the keeper of their perpetual fires. Everybody wanted a fire that wouldn't die out. This fire that God said was never to, grow, to go out, built upon this sacrificial altar. Whenever the system was finally inaugurated and the priests prepared themselves and the people were instructed to bring their appropriate offering, which would have been either the burnt offering, and, and they brought all of these in the inauguration, the grain offering, their fellowship offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. And the priest processes each gift properly and accordingly. They slaughtered the ox and the ram for the fellowship offering. They slaughtered the goat for the sin offering. And they laid them on the altar. And the, it appears as though that the fire on the altar was already burning. It wasn't a great fire. The sacrifices laid on there were smoldering, and they would probably smolder for many days. Can you imagine throwing an entire uh, animal on a fire? I mean, we'll skin it and gut it, clean it and prepare it, burn it and eat it. But just to slaughter this animal and throw it on there and the smells that come from the singed hair and the fat that is going to be burning off of this and sizzling and crackling and it's quite a different experience than what we have with preparing meats on a fire and so whatever fire was there was prepared for the sacrifices whatever sacrifices were brought were probably burning to some degree but as they did this, all of a sudden, they weren't expecting this. God had not revealed to them the biggie. There was going to be a biggie. And at that moment when they put these sacrifices on there, there was this fire that came down from heaven. And instead of waiting for these sacrificial bits and pieces and offerings to be burned up over a period of days, it just came down and it consumed everything. Whew. If you wasn't watching, you missed it. It had such a profound effect on the people that the Bible says they shouted for joy and they fell down on their face. Wouldn't you like to see the fire of God just fall like that? I don't care if you're accustomed to shouting or not. I think we'd have some shouting in the house. So this Jewish tradition about this fire that was never to go out suggests that possibly they kept that fire burning successfully day and night, week after week, and year after year. And some suggest that whenever Manasseh, the wicked son of Hezekiah, this was the offspring of the king who turned his face to the wall, who was dying, and begged and pleaded God, just give me a little more life. And God heard his request. Yet, in that extended period of time, he bore a son named Manasseh. And Manasseh became a very wicked king. And Jewish tradition said it was during the reign of Manasseh who caused the people to walk through the fires of Balak. His interest was not in the fires of the Lord, but in the heathen fires, the idolatrous fires. But we don't have proof that it, the fire of the Lord went out under Manasseh. Others speculate that the fire was kept successful even through many invasions by other nations and other powers as they would take the fire and hide it sometimes in a well 
as though it was a, a living well, an active well. And enemies went hunting for that fire, trying to put it out. They heard it was in this well over here, and they'd dig it up, and they got nothing but water and mud. There was no fire down there. They couldn't find the fire. But the Jews had been given the command, the fire shall never go out. It'll ever be burning. So you, you have to think creatively, what would you do if God told you, don't let this fire go out? But the enemy's coming. And they could have thought creative like, creatively like you and, and done any number of things to hide the fire. But some suggest that it was... Nebuchadnezzar that destroyed the when he destroyed the temple that that's when the fire finally went out the fact of the matter is we know that someday somehow some way the perpetual fire went out because things that are left up to mere people don't always succeed and all of these other heathen nations and people that they wanted a perpetual fire too. Their fires died out. And then we read of the people who were gathered in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, pray, tarry, wait, until you be endued with power from on high. We're reminded of John the Baptist, who was drawing quite a crowd, causing quite a stir with his powerful preaching, this wild man coming out of the woods. Rumors were circulating about the weird holy man that lived out in the woods. Dressed funny, living on locusts and wild honey. He didn't need much. When he finally emerges from the wilderness, he goes and addresses the religious people of his age and sticks his crooked finger in the face of the Pharisees and calls them a bunch of vipers, hypocrites, and warns them the axe is laid to the root of the tree. He explains that his ministry is a ministry of water baptism. But his ministry is a ministry of introduction. He's a forerunner. He's preparing the way. And he says, but the one that's coming after me, very shortly, I come, I baptize with water. But you ain't seen nothing yet. Because the one that's coming after me I am not worthy to untie his shoes. And he's the one that's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And on that day of Pentecost, when they were gathered together there and praying in obedience to the command of the Lord, suddenly there came a noise from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. And the eyewitnesses saw this strange phenomenon as there were jets of fire resting upon the people. And the fire from heaven fell. Might I suggest that that was the New Testament fire. That God would speak to his church and say, I ignited the fire. Don't you let it go out. Paul picks up on that theme when the first thing he says in this little passage I have selected, don't quench the Spirit. Now he passes quickly over that. But I don't think he intended us to pass quickly over it. I think he intended that to be bold-faced, underlined, highlighted, quotation marks. Everything we can do to emphasize, don't quench the Spirit. It's vitally important that the fire that God has ignited in you as a person, and the fire God has ignited in the church, never be allowed to be put out by the enemies, like they did to the torch carrier, like they did 
to the people who invaded the kingdom of the Jews and tried to seek out their fire. Or like happened with the careless Jews who just didn't stay faithful to the commands of the Lord. And Paul calls upon us, that's me, that's you, don't let the fire go out. You've tasted of the fire. You've tasted of the presence and the power of the Lord. But don't let the fire of the Spirit go out in your life. You've been lit up. You've been ignited. Started by God, not initiated by man. And it must be nursed along day and night. And you take care of the fire, just like the Jews on the run had to take care of the fire. How important is it to you that the fire doesn't go out? When we play around with compromising sin, we might as well be pouring water on the fire. When we quit preaching and teaching the full gospel, we are not only watering down the truth, we're watering down the fire. When the church bickers and squabbles and the people fight among themselves, we're just dousing the fire. We think that our attitudes don't have an effect on the presence of the Holy Spirit in our church. Now, for those who are not familiar with our church, we haven't had a good knockdown drag out in a long time here. We're content, this congregation, to serve the Lord without contention. God's been good to Westside. We're not pouring water on the fire. We don't have many people left to come in and sit down and start griping and complaining about what they don't like because it got to the point where with our encouragement, nobody wanted to listen to them, so they took their act somewhere else. We don't like carrying on like that. We see it as pouring water on the fire. We can't let it go out. When we let carnality into our lives, or we let the church stray from its purpose and its mission. We're just pouring water on the fire. When you come to the church and you bask in the presence of the Holy Spirit and you feel the Holy Ghost doodads running up and, back, up and down your spine, but you go home and you start acting like a heathen, you're pouring water on the fire. The presence of the Holy Spirit should be so valuable to us that we cherish it like the psalmist who realized there's a lot of things he could do without, but there's certain things he just could not do without. And he prayed, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. How important is it to you? Don't quench the Spirit. I move quickly to number two. And I've retooled this don't ignore the truth don't despise the prophecies don't treat them shamefully but I think the point that we're getting at is prophecies come forth and we're not to ignore them we're not to treat them lightly don't ignore the truth so what is a prophecy in the context in which this is used Paul is not talking about people who predict the future. He's talking about the speaking forth of the truth of God. If I use God's scripture to bring forth concepts and ideas and challenge us, that is prophecy that is coming forth. If you teach God's word in a Sunday school setting, you're bringing forth prophecy. It's the fourth telling of God's word. It's truth. And Paul said he had a preference that he would rather speak a few words, prophecy, few words you could understand, than to speak tongues all day long that you couldn't understand. And so there's an order to things 
in the operation of the Holy Spirit. In the years of my ministry, there have been a few times, not many, there have been a few times when my sermon has been interrupted by somebody who wanted to give a message in tongues. And the fact of the matter is, it's not biblical to take that which is clear and understandable and interrupt that and say, wait a minute, I have a cryptic message I want to give. There's a time and a place for the use of the gifts. But taking priority is speaking what people can understand. Whenever Paul warns them, don't abuse the truth, don't ignore the truth, here's how that applies to us today. There's three issues concerning ignoring the truth, rejecting the word, and revising the word. First of all, ignoring the word. Have you ever met any people in, in the realm of Christianity who have their pet doctrines and their pet beliefs? Have you ever met those people that you don't have a clue where they get these ideas? Doesn't make any biblical sense to you, but you can see that they are real fond of their theories. If you haven't seen them, then you're not moving in the same circles I move in because I run into these people from time to time. I remember when I was on the evangelistic field, I had a young man that was kind of intrigued by my ministry, I guess. He wanted to come during the daytime and spend a little time visiting with me and and uh, I spent some time with him. And then he, he shares one of these weird theories that he has. He says, I don't believe Jesus ever slept. And as I talked to him a little bit about this, you know, why is it you don't believe that Jesus ever slept? Because he was God, he didn't need sleep. Well, you know, the first thing you think is that Jesus was on the boat in the hinder part of the boat asleep on a pillow. What about that? Well, that doesn't count. Why doesn't it count? Because I don't believe it means he was sleeping. Well, see, when you get your mind fixed on something, you have to twist everything else to fit fit that. Because your preconceived idea becomes the immovable truth. And everything else must conform to that. We talked a little more, and I could see he was getting upset because this was his pet doctrine. So I finally had to leave him alone. He just felt comfortable believing that Jesus never slept, and he didn't want anybody to mess with him. That's just one example of people I have seen that they have their pet theories. I guess they want to appear clever. I guess they want to to make people think that they're deep thinkers. And they thought of something nobody else thought of. But thinking of unique things is not really our goal as Christians. Understanding the truth is our goal. Not coming up with these weird things that have no biblical basis whatsoever. So ignoring the word. People found these kind, uh, Paul found these kind of people in the churches at Corinth and Galatia and the church at Rome. And Timothy pastored the church in Ephesus and Paul wrote him two letters warning him about these kinds of people. These were the people that were making a religion out of petty things. Like to the church of Rome, They had this issue, and it was very similar to another issue that that he wrote about to the Corinthian church. There were these people that they were vegetarians. And they were making a big religious deal out of being vegetarians, not eating any meat. Now, Paul did not go into a lot of description and analysis of the meat-eating or non-meat-eating issue at Rome. But we understand 
the implications of it from his other letters and the culture at that time probably had a lot to do with the questioning where the meat came from. But, but for whatever uh, uh, reason they had this division, Paul said it's the weak people. He, he put them into categories. It's the weak people who think that their relationship with God hinges on things like what you eat, your dietary concerns. And he said it's the strong people that don't have those kind of qualms in the relationship with the Lord. Now, Paul was pretty easy on the weak people in the book of Romans. He spent most of his time explaining in, in that section, in that passage, to the stronger people, just don't worry about it. Be patient with these people. Because probably the strong people were getting so frustrated by the weak people who were condemning the stronger people about eating meat that the strong people began to ridicule the weaker people. And Paul said, we're not going to do that. There's a time and place where we can change this. But this is the kind of petty stuff sometimes that people build their religion around. They're ignoring the truth. They want to believe what they want to believe. They feel safe believing what they want to believe. And I think if we're going to apply that to Christians today, be careful what you begin to make your religion uh, out of, what you begin to build it around. Now, I, I'm, I'm probably going to go into an area where we might stomp a toe or two. Get your feet out of the aisle. Tuck them under your seat. I don't intend to stomp feet. It just happens sometimes in my clumsy ministry. But there have historically been people that have been so obsessed with being King James only. It's become a religion to them. And everything that is not King James is unacceptable, King James Version, and only King James works, except... They don't, have any, they don't have any explanation for the 1,600 years of scriptures that we had that were in Latin or in Greek, the Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate. There was no King James Version. And what chance do those people have? Or they have no explanation for all the different languages in the world that don't speak English. Your Spanish Bible, your French Bible, your German Bible. They aren't King, Eng King James English. Except it's a very narrow concept that here in the United States we have to speak these and thous or it's not authentic. We even throw a few these and thous in when we pray because God understands these and thous better than you and me. It becomes a religious thing. I had a young man that just got saved in my church out in California. And somebody got a hold of him and poisoned his brain before I had a chance to get him on the right track. And he picked up this little track on why the King James Bible is the only, the only Bible. And he got so far off on that, he, he couldn't even finish his Christian walk. Became so obsessed with minor things that mean nothing. He just didn't make it. I can tell when people aren't going to make it because they're building on bad foundations. The second thing is rejecting the word. Ignoring the word, rejecting the word. This is the rebellious faction. They know what the Bible says, and sometimes they can quote it for you. They just choose not to obey it. And James has this amusing analogy for people who reject the word. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So the hearers and the doers can be two different people. Shouldn't be. But there can be hearers that are not doers. And James says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says. So I'm giving you the word today. There will be bits and pieces here that you will take home that you will know because of this sermon, this is what the Word says. 
But if you don't do it, this is what James says you are. It says anyone who hears the word and does not do what the word says, does not obey it, is like a person who looks in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. I think that's hilarious. Because I really don't know anybody that literally does that, but I know spiritually and by application a lot of people who do that. It's just like looking there and seeing every flaw. Knowing your features. Knowing the things that maybe could be done better. You look at yourself in your mirror and men, you say, you know what? I haven't shaved for five days. I really ought to take care of that. Or I haven't trimmed my facial hair. I'm just getting wild crops all over the place. I really need to take care of that. Or you've got other things about you that you look in the mirror. It's an inspection time. We do personal inspection. And, and you, go, you look in the mirror and you go, that's hideous. Nobody wants to see me like this. But when you leave and you don't do anything about it, you just go out in public. And everybody else is seeing what you saw, but all you see is what you think yourself to be. So you're perfectly at ease with yourself. I mean, you got bed hair that's springing everywhere. And all kinds of things going on. But you, you don't care. Because standing there, you can't see yourself. You're thinking you are gorgeous. Spiritually, this is what people are doing. The mirror is God's word. We look in God's word. We see things that are hideous in ourselves. We look in the mirror of God's word, but we go away and don't do anything about it. That's rejecting the word. The convicting power of the Holy Spirit is an interesting phenomenon. We can be visibly shaken under his convicting power. And it, that's a call that demands a positive response. How many times has a man or woman left that powerful encounter with God in his church, in his house, in his presence, after a sermon. And you can, you can see that people are impacted by the word. When they leave, do they have they looked in the mirror and they go their way and do nothing about it? Well, the ABCs of Christianity, one of the basics of is when you hear the word, do it. That's what we're working towards. The third thing is revising the word. And there's a lot of theological revisionism going on today. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but it, things that we have traditionally viewed as uh, theological uh, safety points, safe points uh, in, in Christianity, they're being challenged today. People are no longer believing in these things. Their expert theology, uh, theologians have come along and decided it doesn't really mean what it says. You have to find the key that it means something entirely other. And unless, unless you get their key, you'll never understand it the way that they understand it. And I, I'm, really, I'm really bothered by theological revisionism. Now, something that's happening today is we're going through another cycle where people are wanting to re read the Bible with a lot more symbolism instead of just reading it literally. They, they think reading it literally doesn't give us enough dimension of the beauty that's there. So there's a, there's a lot of symbolism that's going on uh, in, in the reading and the study and, and the interpretation of God's Word today. And I, I, don't, I don't care much for that. But as a pastor, I will tell you that I do get a lot of that, even from the, the lay people who will come and they will say, oh, I just heard somebody on TV. And, you know, I get the impression that if I had a television program, my words would be a whole lot more reliable than they are here in your face. Because there's something about the authority of buying time and being on television that makes everything somebody says so. And so I'm concerned. Somebody will say, I just heard this person on 
television, and they said, and they'll go into something that they, they bring out of the Bible and how they tie that into something else symbolically, and they look at me and say, I've never heard that before, have you? I said, no. <laughs> Under my breath, I said, I hope I never hear it again. We've got to stay in the safe zone. We, we can't get too flamboyant. And boy, when you get into Revelation, oh, does that come flying to pieces? Because we just can't hardly believe and fathom and swallow that those things in Revelation could really happen. So instead of there really being this star fall from heaven called wormwood that poisons the waters, that's got to be the fall of some ecclesiastical system or it's got to be the fall of some nation. We're going to turn into all, all kinds of other stuff other than what it is. And I'm just too simple, people. I think God gave us a word, and we're to understand that word. And if it's possible that it's literal, it's literal. And if it's not possible it's literal, then we find out what it literally means behind the symbol. It's very simple. Let's keep this easy. We get too mystical sometimes on trying to interpret. So we're revising the word. Obviously, there's a couple of issues that that have uh, affected us today. Uh, the, uh, the revisionists, theological revisionists, uh, are, are looking for biblical authority to, to redefine uh, the one man, one woman marriage. And uh, there are theologians and churches that are jumping on that bandwagon. There's other areas of theological revisionism in uh, talking about the second coming of Jesus and, and uh, future events, uh, uh, eschatology, what's going to happen from this point out. They just think they're discovering things today that what we've always believed just isn't so. And, and they've got new truth. The second, the third point is, Paul says to them, preserve what is good. Now, this is an interesting thing because there's, there's two approaches to preserving what is good. The, the first one I, I want to suggest to you is uh, preserve what is good in your life when you came to the Lord. I want you to sell it all out to God. I really do. I want you to be 100% sold out to him. But selling it all out to God doesn't mean you literally have to put everything on the market and sell it. And then say, now God, I'm starting over. My house is gone. My, my, my car is gone. All my investments are gave away. You're starting over. You know, God's not asking you to literally go bankrupt because you got saved. So preserve what is good on a personal basis. When you come to God, you have to be willing to turn over to God anything he may want. And God is willing to give back to you anything that you're going to need. And there's a lot of good things that come. For instance, for instance, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he found out that their encounter with the Lord was impacting their opinion about marriage. He was saying, some of you people who are married, when you get saved, you decide you don't have to be married anymore. Because now that you're saved, he's not saved, or she's not saved. And, that's got an, and now you've got an unholy alliance here, and one has gotten saved, the other, one, the, the other one's still an unbeliever, and they were deciding that this new walk for the Lord, let's just throw everything out, let's, let's get rid of the old spouse, and let's start over again. And Paul says, you, you don't want to do that. You just can't throw everything out just because you got saved. And, of course, the opposite of that is uh, there were people that got saved that were not married. And uh, Paul had made mention. He said, now, if you were like me, I wish everybody's like me. There would be no, no people who are bogged down and unable to attend to the, uh, to the, to the uh, work of the Lord. And he said, I'm footloose and fancy free. I don't have a wife to answer to. And some people looked at that and said, well, if I get saved, then I probably should not get married but then Paul says, but if you're married, you haven't sinned. So you've got to hold on to what is good. So if you're married, don't necessarily go and... If you're unmarried, it doesn't mean you necessarily have to go seek a spouse. It doesn't mean necessarily you have to not go seek a spouse. But they were getting carried away with what kind of change are you supposed to make when you get saved? There are changes that we make when we get saved. There are necessary changes we make when we get saved. But we have to know how to keep that which is good. 
I, I know a woman who married a man. Neither one of them was saved. In fact, both of them had been previously married multiple times. But these unsaved people married each other, and they were going to give it another shot for the third or fourth time. And they seemed relatively happy together if they were not happy in their mutual misery. I, I don't know what, but they, they, they were getting along fine until, here's where the problem came, until the woman found a church and got saved. But the church that she attended and got saved in was, was an old-time legalistic church. That's where she happened to cut her spiritual baby teeth. So uh, Ann and I saw her sometime after she was saved. And before she was saved, uh, she obviously uh, took care of herself. Uh, But after she got saved, one of the first things she started doing is because the church she attended, uh, she stopped wearing makeup. And she started dressing really frumpy. And she told Ann and me, when we're kind of trying to get to the bottom of what's happened to you, she says, I got saved. But when, when she says, when I got saved, I got saved all the way. Now, I've been around the block enough times to know that she picked that up from this little group of people that was one of their mantras. When I got saved, I got saved all the way. So what that meant to her was it was insinuating that the makeup... And, and the uh, uh, maybe dressy clothing or just something that looks nice were salvation issues. And her new and unimproved look was less impressive to her husband. You had to know that. So she became this radical Bible thumper and it virtually drove her unsaved husband away. And this is so far from a biblical teaching When saved wives have an opportunity to be a witness to their unsaved husbands by impressing him with the beauty of her spirit. Now, here's the passage we use for that. This is 1 Peter chapter 3. And I'm going to tell you the way it has been misinterpreted and the way it should be interpreted. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Now, I don't know how many of you women here have ever been in the position of being the saved one in your house and the husband is not saved, but I would venture to say if there's any of you here today, you've already discovered that witnessing to your husband on a daily basis with words doesn't get you anywhere. Your husband thinks you are nagging. You call it witnessing, he calls it nagging. You're both talking about the same thing, but you've got totally different perspectives about what all this is. And Peter says, win them without words. When they see your purity and your reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment. Now, that's that's part of where we get hung up here. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. And rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. This is the holy way holy women of, of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. So at that point, if that's where we left it, we could have women rushing home right now to get rid of all their jewelry and throw out all their makeup and find their granny clothes and get them out and say, this is what God wants me to be as a safe person. But we have misunderstood that. One of the the most accurate translations, uh, the New American Standard Bible, NASB, and and you can find that online if you don't have a copy at your house, uh, actually does a very good job of of, uh, translating this verse. Your adornment must not be merely external. The braiding of the hair, the wearing of the gold jewelry, and pulling dresses. But add to that. You see... Sometimes when we read that, the women think in order to effectively win their unsaved husbands, 
they have to let the outward appearance go to the dogs. They don't go to beauty salons anymore. They go to an ugly salon. They get the homely treatment. And then they come home and say, I'm going to be so nice to you. You're just going to serve the Lord. He won't want anything to do with you. You come in looking like the maid. The housekeeper. He wants a woman that understands her femininity. Keep the good. Hold on to the good things. You might wish to change occupations because of your salvation. But you might not have to. Depends on where you work. Depends on what you're required to do. Can you as a Christian continue to do what you do and maintain your, your, your testimony? That happens. Sometimes people, when they get saved, they realize, this is not where God wants me to be in my life. I have to change. Now, you can't find any place that's perfect to work. I understand that. And you're going to go and you're going to work among uh, people that are not saved, and I understand that. And that's a good thing because if you're going to be salt and light, you're going to have to get out there where people need salt and people need light. But sometimes people have a problem in their conscience with the things that their re- work requires them to do. And maybe you're being required by people who are your superiors to do things that are not honest. and You cannot continue to work there as a Christian. Those things, those changes can happen. But it's a case-by-case basis. There, there was a man <clears throat> who I went to school with. He married his high school sweetheart. And he worked, went to work in his father's successful family business. They built a new house. Uh, they had children. They were a beautiful couple, beautiful family, upstanding citizens. But one day he went to church and he got saved. And he got so radical when he got saved that he felt like he needed to sell out everything he had and, and go minister for the Lord. I think he was going to buy a, a motor home and he's going to travel and he's just going to witness for the Lord. I don't think he had a real good plan. Uh, this was a classmate of mine. And as I continued to try and follow where did this man go, you know, uh, I found out he, his marriage actually broke up. His wife left him. And, you know, that's not, that's not successful. If, if you're going to go out and save the whole world, but you can't even keep your own family connected to the Lord. Hold on to that which is good. Salvation doesn't come in and wreck your life. It's supposed to put you together, not take you apart. The second sense in which we read this verse about hold on to what is good is not so much on a personal level as it is on a societal level. As Christians, we want to grab on to the things that are good and help preserve them for the good of society. So let your brains start thinking right now. What is it you see slipping away in our nation, in our community? What is it that you as a Christian want to take a stand for? Now here's the danger of it. I want you to listen very closely because I don't want any, any misunderstandings about what I'm about to say. Sometimes we get more focused on trying to preserve the good things as Christians than we do taking the, the fundamental steps toward making this a good society, and that is changing people. And we become more focused on changing things through the political system, changing it through the ballot box. Because we, when we failed at level one of changing people, then we're scrambling at this level to try and keep the bad changes from happening, which we've already lost the battle. But if everything's in order and we're doing everything we can to change people, then our second calling is to make sure we are holding on to the good things. And we are in a battle for the soul of people and the soul of a nation today. And it's about time that we lay the politics aside. And it doesn't make any difference what party affiliation you have. There is a clear moral line that is drawn in this nation. And you want to be on God's side. I'll tell you, I'm a registered Republican. Not because I, I think that uh, the Republicans are a perfect party. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm terribly, terribly disappointed in things that Republicans are doing. I, I think politicians in general, on both sides, they're blowing it bad. 
but I, you know, I, I'd leave the, the party in a, in a second if there was a better alternative. But the point of the matter is, no matter what I am registered as, I have a responsibility to reject my party if they're not going to follow God. And I do. I'm not here to vote vote as a registered person just because I have to hold faithful to a party line. I have to hold faithful to God. We have a responsibility, politics aside. Hold on to the good. If the church is not going to do it, it's not going to get done. There's a lot of moral issues on the table right now. First of all, Let's change the kids that we have access to in our church. Let's get them going in the right direction. Let's produce a whole different generation that is raised up leaning on God. And then, after having done that with all our might, let's hold on to the good. And let's hold on to the right and the godly. And, and I know people are going to make the argument that in, in a democracy that we have no business Uh, bringing morals or religion into it. It's already there, no matter whether it's a Christian religion or an atheistic religion or a humanistic religion. You can't get away from it. Somebody's going to have influence. And I would rather have influence for God. I don't think anybody here would object to that. I want God to have influence in our nation. One nation under God. The final thing is, very quick point, reject what is evil. I don't know how much that needs to be explained. If it's wrong, don't do it. This verse, reject what is evil, has been poorly translated or poorly interpreted, let me say, poorly interpreted by people. And the King James Version, uh, for you King James only people, says, abstain from every appearance of evil. And, and the word appearance messed things up. Because for those people who became very legalistic in their walk, they began to take the word appearance, and they misapplied it from evil that appears to us, and we run from it, and they applied it to meaning uh, us appearing to be evil by the things we did. So I grew up in the church that had that twisted interpretation of that. And we didn't play cards of any sort because cards were associated with poker and poker was gambling and therefore there was the appearance of evil. And we didn't play any games with dice in it because dice was associated with gambling and gambling was evil, so it was the association. And we didn't go to the movie theater because uh, there's the appearance they were scared to death. The people in our church scared to death. If you went to the theater, somebody who knew you was a Christian might go by and see you going into the theater and think you was going into a nasty movie. So it was the appearance of evil. And see, this is not the interpretation of the Scripture. As a matter of fact, you, you get out the various translations, they take the word appearance clear out of there. What it means is when evil appears very blatantly, very obviously before you, run from it. That's all it means. Which seems like legalistically we became more concerned about our reputation. Of course, Jesus came and made himself of no reputation. Maybe we should take a cue from something like that. When I was a little boy, we built... My father built a brand new house in Chillicothe, Missouri. We moved from 22 miles away from Trenton, Missouri to Chillicothe. He got a job with Missouri Public Service. In our basement, there was a pool table. I I was too young to remember where my dad got the pool table. Why he had it, I don't know. And I was too little to play pool, except my mother had an old ringer washer with those long wooden dowels rods that you would use to hook the the how many of you ladies remember that i, I you don't want to raise your because you're going to date yourself okay yeah. those little so to me as a young boy that looked like a perfect pool cue my size cue stick 
So they'd all want to play pool. I'd go back and get one of those wooden dowels and I was up there. Well, the little Assembly of God church we attended, the pastor found out my dad had a pool table in his basement. And so he devoted a lot of sermons to that. Always looking for good sermon material, you know. And my dad got to feeling so bad about being browbeaten that he got rid of the pool table. Then we had an evangelist come through a little while later, and he come up and he whispered to my dad, he says, I hear you have a pool table in your basement. Dad says, no, I got rid of it. He says, that's too bad. I love to play pool. So this poor interpretation of this verse, the appearance of evil, has undergirded a very legalistic holiness. The second problem we have is that we we have a problem sometimes agreeing on what is evil. Let's make this easy, okay? I want to close this out real easy. Even though I do believe there are slippery slopes that we should avoid, and those slippery slopes are difficult to, to debate and to hammer out, and even though there are, I believe there are complicated issues that, that just aren't simple black and white, that don't have clear, precise answers in the Bible, uh, I believe those issues require that we use discernment. And sometimes young Christians don't have discernment. It's, it's, it can be messy. Even considering that these kind of issues on which it is more difficult for us to find a unanimous consensus, let's just focus on the basics for a good starting point. Let's make this real easy. There are sins which bring harm to others. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not lie. There are sins which violate sacred things. Do not cover your neighbor's wife. Do do not commit adultery. Do not commit fornication. There are sins which bring harm upon ourselves. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Treat your body, treat your life like it's something that is a gift from God or on loan from God. There are sins which grieve God, rebellion against His authority and against His law and His commandments. And if Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with everything within us and the second second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor as ourselves, if we don't do that, that's evil. These are very simple things. But we can get a little more specific because Paul was famous for lists. He loved lists. And in the fifth chapter of Galatians, he just rambled off a list that if you want a list of evil things, Paul was right there for us. He said the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a, it's a list. There you go. You want some reference list? Lord, am I pleasing you? Are there evil things I should avoid? There. Check yourself. How are you doing? But then Paul reels off another list, a similar list to the Corinthians. He said, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? So don't be deceived. Don't be sexually immoral or idolaters, or adulterers, or male prostitutes, or homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's another list. And with Paul's penchant for listing sins, we shouldn't be surprised. He writes to Timothy, and guess what? He gives him a list. He says, mark this, in the last days, terrible times are going to come. And people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. And then John, the revelator, had his own little list in the 21st chapter. He said, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is a second death. It seems like, it, well, maybe that's a little overwhelming. You've probably got 50 things there that you can't do. And I know we've often talked about Christianity is not a, a list of do's and don'ts. But as a matter of fact, do's and don'ts do exist in Christianity. Now, as far as your salvation is concerned, you're not doing this to find salvation. 
You're doing this because this pleases the Lord, because it, it helps you in your walk, because it, it develops you into a mature Christian. Because if you don't do these things, uh, uh, if you don't uh, obey the Lord and you participate in these things, it corrupts you. It's deadly to your spiritual walk. So, you know, I'm not asking you to get this list out and go down and say, I didn't do this one and this one and this one and this one and this one today. I must be okay. But I'm telling you, the Bible is not silent concerning some evil things that we just don't need to have anything to do with. Let's summarize. We'll close it out. Don't quench the spirit. Don't ignore the truth. Preserve everything that's good. And reject everything that's evil. Now, that's just the ABCs of Christianity, but that'll take you a long ways in developing your life for God. Would you bow your heads?